0: Welcome to the next episode of the What's Next podcast. We are excited today to be joined by Sarah Hammersma, a professor at uh, Maxwell at Syracuse University, who has a robust amount of information stored in her brilliant mind um, that I'm excited for her to be able to share some of it with us today. Um, but Instead of me trying to introduce her, because there are so many wonderful things I could say, I would love for her to just start off by introducing herself. So, Sarah, would you? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who you are? Who you love? What keeps you awake at night? Fills your days?
1: Sure. Thank you so much, Nicole, for having me. This is a really neat opportunity. Um, so uh, my name is Sarah. I'm uh, an economist and a mother and a Christian, and those three things really drive a lot of the things that I. Think about and like you said what keeps me up at night um I love my two children Meredith and Lucas and my husband Rob I love um I love my students who want to be world changers um and so part of what fills my days is educating people lately it's also included educating my kids because we've been homeschooling for uh three months um and I made sure to squeeze a little economics in there, even though it wasn't in their curriculum. <laughs> um, they know about supply and demand curves now, and uh, and <laughs> and uh, a bit about housing policy and housing discrimination. So uh, we're moving, we're moving on um, to uh, try and figure out what I can teach them that isn't at the high school level, where all the stuff is pitched online. Um, so um, I love um, filling my days with educating people. I um, teach statistics and economics um, to students who are studying policy analysis and um, public administration at SU. Um, and um, I also uh, have a sort of a passion just for educating anyone who's interested in learning about um, the important lessons that economics and statistics have to teach us. And so, uh, so I'm pretty active on Facebook, just uh, talking with people and trying to help people interpret the news that's going on around them. Um, mm-hmm. As for what keeps me up at night, it's really a couple key things that are, are um, driven by my concern that as a society, we fail to acknowledge every person being made in the image of God. Um, and so we don't uh, treat people with the dignity they need. Um, we And also we don't use the evidence to figure out the best ways to make these important kinds of life and death decisions um, that are made every day by policymakers and citizens, and so um, over the last few years i've really felt um, most concerned about this notion of um, people being disposable and and what we can do as a society to change that um, to change that perspective and to recognize the dignity of every person hmm. I love it
0: i i love I don't love the issue that we 're facing right, but the that you are finding ways for you to use your skills to be able to in, engage it is is a, I think a a thing that is begged of all of us right now. Um, and so this is a good good time for us to be having this conversation. Um, so this week's topic um, for the What's next series is equity for those of you listening, um, Hope Print has embarked on a new initiative um, that we call the Next initiative. So neighborhood equity exchange and transformation. And today we want to focus on that second word of, of equity. And it's equity is an interesting word. Um, it means a lot of things to a lot of people. And we're not even going to be able to cover half of the different perspectives and views and definitions, um, really, that can be encompassed in this concept of equity. But I'm really thrilled to have you as an economist uh, joining us for this conversation, because there's there's nothing quite like data, um, which I know you have a, a special love for um, to raise this up as a, a crucial topic. So I have a, a good deal of people in my life who are inclined to make the argument that equality was legislated in the the Civil Rights Act um, and that any lack of access due to people's is due to people's personal choices, not systems in society, um, that is a statement that I would have made a few weeks ago, and I feel like has been all the more exasperated in recent weeks, um, in light of all of the uh, protests and things uh, people have come to, I think, a, a new reckoning moment on, on what is actually going on in terms of racial um, equality, racial equity. And so I would love, though, to engage this this topic, not from opinion, not from politics, or from some of the ways that we tend to come at it. Um, but more like I saw you coming at uh, COVID-19, uh, let's look at the data. So can you speak to this? Uh, is this belief like of, of what it looks like um, for people's, the lack of access being tied to people's personal choices and not systems in society, right? That belief, is that backed up by data? What does the data say on that question?
1: Well, I think the data are actually pretty clear on the question. And that is, um, while any any cases could uh, result from human choices, there are just lots and lots of systemic issues that are not even close to generating equality even today. Um, the Civil Rights Act was very, very important. It did help. It helped a lot. Uh, it codified things that needed to be codified into law. Uh, and um, and there's research done using using the data to suggest that there were immediate after effects of the civil rights act that were really important. And so um, uh, there have been people who've thought the civil rights act was a little bit more of like just a formality for how society was changing anyway. And, and there's evidence that's not really true. The civil rights act was crucial. Hmm. Um, but what else we learned over time is uh, the civil rights act, while it set things up legally did not set things up socially. And so um, hmm. there still needed to be, profound change. And in fact, implementing that change is almost impossible to enforce. And so um, so there were creative ways um, to um, continue in acts of discrimination. Um, I've just recently um, showed my children something about redlining so that they would understand something about redlining. This was a, a system by which black people were systematically excluded from being able to borrow money or were charged exorbitant interest rates to borrow money to buy homes. Um, and this ability to build wealth through home ownership really was um, was stunted for a whole population of people for decades and decades, uh, and so even if one believes that today there is absolutely no discrimination in lending, it is still the case that there is tremendous inequities in wealth based on what has happened in the past. Now, that said, there actually is evidence that there is still discrimination in lending, and so The data also say that if you run an experiment where you uh, bring two people with the same credit score and the same uh, financial record to a bank to look for a mortgage and you put a black name on one application and a white name on another application, that they are not treated the same way. Um, This is also true in employment. Um, There's evidence of this in the United States. There's also evidence of this in France. Um, I think the French case is really interesting because In that case, uh, rather than black and white names, uh, they look at native French names versus Algerian names. Um, Hmm. And uh, France is an interesting country because they are so uh, quote unquote colorblind that they do not have anti-discrimination law. Uh, And in fact, their Hmm. their census doesn't collect people's race uh, because they have decided that they will be a race-free society. Unfortunately, their society isn't race-free uh, in the sense of discrimination, and so um, these employment issues come up everywhere. Um, and uh, one of my colleagues at SU uh, did a study based on um, racial profiling in um, in um, oh, what is racial profiling um, in pulling people over when they're driving, um, hmm. and. Uh, so there's there's been lots of uh, questions about how to understand crime data, and unfortunately that's not really my area of expertise. But one of my colleagues um, came up with a brilliant idea, which was to actually um, to look at uh, the number of people pulled over, uh, both black people and white people pulled over, and to correlate that with whether their skin tone would have been visible at the time that they were pulled over. And so. Um, there was Mm -hmm. an initial study on this just based on sunset and like when was light out when it was dark out Um, because you can't racial profile. If you can't see someone Uh, look Mm -hmm. at the difference um, during the day and during uh, the night. Um, But what he did was a step further. He actually, uh, and this is the miracle of data. He actually got data on all the streetlights and where they are and documented those kind of cross tabulated those with where all the traffic stops were. Uh, and was able to clearly demonstrate that in the city of Syracuse uh, a black person is 15% more likely to be pulled over when their race is visible than when not uh compared to a white person um, hmm. so there is there is uh in housing in um in policing and in employment there is a demonstrated continued existence of uh racial issues um and and those are those are ongoing and build on top of the lack of wealth and security that was really founded uh in our in our origins as a country and, and have never been rectified. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: I um a couple of weeks ago we had a podcast uh on implicit bias and how beliefs take root in our subconscious and how much that ends up driving um, a lot of our decisions. So uh, many, many of us might think I'm not racist. Um, And yet there is so much rooted in the subconscious that causes decisions to be made. um, And uh, it it drives, the data just helps bring it, I think, to the light in in a really powerful way. So Mm -hmm. what story does that data tell about access
1: to basic human needs? Well, I think, um, I, I think the starting point has to be this notion that because there's a lack of wealth that was um, founded on a racist foundation, um, the, a lack of wealth mm-hmm. among minorities in the United States, that people are not set up uh, to have a cushion to handle um, the sort of normal ebb and flow of life events um, where you might need to just have a little bit of money put away. And I think um, we'll talk a little about COVID later, but um, COVID is a great Mm -hmm. example in the sense that uh, one of the reasons a lot of schools were hesitant about closing for COVID was because no one was sure how the kids would get fed. Um, We're in a situation where whole populations of people don't have resources to be able to feed their children. Um, and this this comes out of not just issues of a lack of employment, but just a lack of wealth, a lack of ability to save um, because wages are low or because work is intermittent. Um, and because uh, rent is out of one's own control um, with, without an option for home ownership, um, one's at the mercy of how the rental market happens to work. Uh, where they live. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's just really a lack of a cushion. Um, I highly recommend, I bet a lot of your listeners have read it, but I highly recommend the book Evicted to think more about the housing piece of all this. Um, Mm -hmm. That to me was really um, eye-opening, not actually for the policy recommendations. So as a policy person, I actually found those to be a little heavy-handed at the end of the book. Um, Mm. I think the Policy is complicated, of course. Um, if your main thing is housing, you're going to say the government should just make sure everybody has housing, and, and that would be really cool. But what we don't know is like where that money would come from, which programs would be cut, and whether those other programs like health or education might also be uh, really important. And so, um, so I thought the, mm-hmm. the policy recommendations were like a little too um, set in stone. But in sharp contrast, actually, to what I learned from the book, what I learned from the book was people's lives are incredibly complicated and they're very precariously balanced. And so, um, mm-hmm. if you are a low income person, you may be simultaneously worried about your healthcare access, your food access, your housing, your children's education, your relationships, your personal safety. Um, these, this, the list goes on. And and what was true for people in the book was, um, their energy was completely consumed just by trying to survive for one more day. And so that idea of planning for the future and setting aside money um, for the most part wasn't feasible, but it also, it simply wasn't, there was no mental space for that kind of thinking. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that really, really helped me to understand a a bit more about how much basic access um, to housing, um, to employment, Um, basic healthcare, especially help with addiction, um, really is key to, um, to making sure people would then have the headspace to even plan ahead or think about what their life could be next year and how to make moves in that direction.
0: Right. So that circling back to what, one of the things that you said there at the very beginning was that people have disparities of the wealth that they're starting with. And then that plays a role in, in their access to wealth ongoing. Right. Um, Exactly. Now I know that some people that are listening will be inclined to say, well, my great, great grandfather came with just the clothes on his back and a bag he could hold in his hand. Uh, for example. Yeah. Um, but he, to use a colloquial term, pulled himself up by his bootstraps, and we made it to where we are today through hard work. I, I know this isn't one of the questions we discussed, but I was just wondering if you could speak to that particular narrative in what you just said. What what might be playing a role in, in that being, at least theoretically, the narrative of some, but not of others?
1: Um, I think that's a, yeah, it's a really common narrative and an interesting one and i and I wouldn't want to disparage the hard work of any person's ancestry and um and the um the way that they uh left their home and family where they were from and began a new life somewhere. um it's it's really hard, and it's amazing when people are able to do that. Um, I think where I would caution is just uh, the expectation that that's actually possible for everyone. Um, some of the key issues, of course, are uh, that most black people in America, their uh, ancestors were not immigrants who chose to come to the new world to start a new, fresh life together. Um, they were kidnapped and enslaved. And so to start there as the immigration story, it's hard to imagine um easily shifting that story into something that sounds like the pull yourself up by your bootstrap story when uh, one was actually kidnapped and owned by someone. Um, mm-hmm. And the the ongoing issues with housing have really um, prevented those um, those strides to be made at the level that they could be even now. Um, another note is, uh, is education. So education is also sort of uh, thought of as the great equalizer, it's the thing that can get you somewhere new, get you somewhere um, um, ahead of where your last generation was. And education is very difficult uh, to argue as a a matter of equal access right now. Uh, So if we we think about higher education, it's expensive. There are ways to get help with it and people do. Um, but for certain, higher education is much more available to people who already had means beforehand. Um, But even more concerning to me, honestly, is K-12 education, and that is um, there's simply not uh, equal access in terms of quality. Every child has a school that they're assigned to, but some of those schools are dangerous. Some of them, the teachers aren't really able to teach at grade level because all the children are um, behind, um, are unable to focus because of trauma going on in their lives because of hunger. Uh, and so th- there are so many inequities that come through the school system and then pile onto that the notion that uh, their parents or grandparents were openly discriminated against for their access to higher education. And and you can simply see there that the usual strategy, the ladder that was supposed to be there, just simply didn't have any rungs. They were not available. Um, one other note that I think might be of interest to um, your listeners, especially um, as people interested in Hope Print, um, is a lot of immigrants today are in a different situation than immigrants some time ago to the United States because they're actually continuing to be responsible for their family back home. Um, I, read, okay. I read a really interesting piece years ago that was kind of comparing a, just a, a, a sort of a story piece, but a current a current immigrant to an immigrant from, say, 50 years ago from Europe, um and the immigrant from 50 years ago from Europe was essentially, you know, sent off like we want you to have a better life and we think there are great opportunities in America and that person came to America and uh and they were very successful but this was partly because they um they had themselves to support and maybe their immediate family. Um but today a lot of immigration happens because the needs are so severe and the opportunities so much better here. That one person is sent, and and it's the expectation that that person will be able to not just support themselves and start a new life, but also take care of those that they've left behind. Essentially, that that they're the representative from a larger group of people, and they're responsible for the care of all of those people. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, um, so a lot of uh, a lot of times, one might look and think that a person earns enough money that they should be able to make a better living or have a better lifestyle than they do. And it's confusing to us, but but we don't realize how much money they're sending away. Absolutely. Well, and that,
0: that corresponds into right here in the U S too, you know, there's often talk about the black tax and how, when you are coming from a community where wealth access has been limited due to all the things we're talking about, then you are likely surrounded by a whole lot of people that you love that haven't been able to access wealth. And so if you have been able to access wealth, uh, part of what it looks like to be a, be family is to take care of each other, right. Is, is a, a, I think a cross-cultural concept. And so when those of us who are surrounded by family, who's been able to access maybe not be wealthy. When we talk about wealth, it's it's really easy, I think, for us to, to translate that word into wealthy and we disqualify ourselves from mm-hmm. it. Um, so just just to clarify yeah. that we're not consumed every day by what food we're going to have on the table, if we're going to have a roof over our head, when we're going to be affected, these things, right? So that would be, we have stability maybe um, that comes with some level of wealth. So those of us who aren't surrounded by a bunch of people that we love that are struggling to access that stability, we have a whole different narrative to what you were just saying, that um, that we are living every day. What we can do with that $5 that we found in our pocket when we did it, the laundry and forgot it was there, right? What that mm-hmm. $5 means to us is, is very different um, than what it means to someone who is who is constantly surrounded by people who that $5 could make the difference between a meal today or not. Um, And so this is where we kind of start wading into this equity word. Um, There's, like I said, there's a lot of definitions. I like to define it as equity is giving or investing the most in those who need the most or could stand to gain the most. Right. So looking at those, those gaps Mm -hmm. that exist because of those systems and because of generations and because of history and acknowledging that all of that comes into play and, and snowball effects essentially really um, into the the place where someone might find themselves and to unravel that, to find freedom from that is, is a very big deal. And I know that it it regularly the trauma of it, the realities of it, the expectations of of what's needed for your family, et cetera, et cetera, really, I witness it impact um, tremendously on people's upward mobility. But again, back to the data on that. Um, mm-hmm. Based on your research, what what does it tell this this all? Um, what does the data tell about upward mobility, further development, access to opportunity for? for those who are living in these realities?
1: Well, a lot of my research has had to do with programs that are designed to help um, improve outcomes for people who are at some level of disadvantage. Um, So I've studied um, work subsidies that give uh, employers an extra bonus, um, kind of a bonus for hiring people who um, generally are less likely to access jobs. So this would be people who are currently on public assistance, uh, who maybe have a criminal history um, and so um so the first work that I did was studying whether offering employers a bonus for hiring disadvantaged workers would actually help the disadvantaged workers uh, and what I found was for the most part, it helps the employers and not so much the workers um, it It looks like a little bit of the money does trickle to the worker that the uh, that the firm gets for hiring them. Um, But the goal of the program really was to create new jobs, uh, new job opportunities to get employers to take a little more of a risk on hiring someone that um, might be just a little less qualified or they might have um, some concerns about um, otherwise. And um, it doesn't look like offering this bonus really changes who employers decide to hire. It mostly uh, adds some paperwork so that they can claim dollars that they now qualify for for hiring the people that they usually hired. So, um, so the big winners from this are sort of like um, large hotel chains and retail chains that hire um, a lot of workers who don't have, um, for instance, you know, a college degree or uh, some kind of extensive qualifications. People who hire um, cleaner, cleaners for hotel rooms, people who hire cashiers, um, who were always hiring from a, a group of workers with fewer formal qualifications. Um, they're able to get a bonus for hiring these workers, but there's not actually evidence that they hire more of them. And so so one thing my research says is it's not always simple to provide this mobility. We may say we want to make more jobs available, but uh, we don't actually know how to do that necessarily. Uh, It's certainly not simple. Um, The other work that I've done on policy is mostly about um, extending Medicaid or um, WIC, which is a nutritional benefit program um, sure. mostly to um, single moms, women, um, but also um, families more generally. Uh, and there's good, there's good evidence that the, the research suggests Medicaid does um, help along some various margins. It doesn't always help as much as we might hope Um, It's a little hard to figure out. So this is part of why I like being a researcher because it gives you the opportunity to really try to dig in uh, to answer hard questions um, that are not something that the data can just tell you just by looking at it. So for instance, um, the WIC program um, can start prenatally so women can sign up to get nutritional assistance as soon as they know they're pregnant. Um, But one of the problems we run into is if we look at, say, the birth outcomes of babies whose moms were on WIC or not on WIC. Uh, If you just look at the birth outcomes, the WIC babies are worse off than the non-WIC babies. But the explanation has to be that, well, WIC is an assistance program. So people sign up for WIC if they have low enough income to qualify and they uh, wanna sign up. Uh, And high income people have better birth outcomes in general because they have more resources along all kinds of margins that make their pregnancies healthier. Um, Not to mention Mm -hmm. issues of discrimination and uh, disparity in prenatal care across race. Um, Mm -hmm. And so if we just look at the WIC program, you might look at these birth outcomes and say, look, the babies whose moms had WIC aren't any better off than the other babies. This doesn't seem to work. But the big challenge of research on policy is we actually have to figure out what would have happened without it. We have to know, did WIC make things better than they would have been? Not as good as some other group that has different characteristics. Um, and so mm-hmm. the work that I've done on WIC has suggested that there is some improvement, for instance, in um, reducing prematurity if a mom is on WIC. Um, mm. And so there, um, there's some other evidence that it may help with birth weight some, um, and all of this is um, using clever sorts of um, strategies. So a lot of the research, not mine, um, tries to use things like, um, examining the difference in birth weights between a mother's various children, if some of them were um, covered under WIC and some were not to try to figure out if the babies that mm. received the WIC while they were in utero are better off. Um, so that's, that's kind of a neat strategy. A strategy that we used in the study, one of the studies I did on WIC was um, we tried to figure out which WIC recipients were the neediest ones by actually looking at the school lunch status of their older children in the family. Um, because birth certificates don't tell you people's income. And so you can't, you don't actually know which people are eligible or ineligible for programs based on a birth certificate. But if you know that the mother's other children are receiving free lunches at school, then you can actually infer something about income. And so, um, so the research is, is really hard in the sense that you're almost trying to disentangle something that's very, very tangled up. Um, there are lots and lots of reasons that, Uh, poor women have worse health outcomes um, for their babies. And we're trying to figure out whether this one program happens to make a difference. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. There's uh, a great project. If people are interested in seeing sort of the patterns of mobility, it's not really about policy. It's not about like what change what can change mobility, but just patterns. Um, um, I highly recommend the work by Raj Chetty. Um, His Um, His work at Stanford, he's got a um, whole website dedicated to um, laying out this um, opportunity project that they're working on uh, and just documenting. The New York Times did a great write-up of it. uh, And actually, I saw Raj give a talk, and he imported some of the visual graphics from the New York Times instead of his own slides because they were better. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So if if you uh, look in the New York Times for their summaries of Raj Chetty's project, um, this is just a really neat project. He graduated with his PhD uh, the year before me. He's several years younger than me, um, and uh, he's always been known to be a prodigy. In fact, my my advisor was, uh, at the time I was graduating, was figuring out whether to nominate me for some, um, some dissertation award at, at one of our professional organizations. And uh, he told me he needed to check first to make sure that Raj Chetty had already gotten it because if he hadn't, like depending on the depending on the timing of, of when he when he got his degree, if he was gonna be in the pool, I shouldn't even bother. So that was a great vote of confidence from my advisor. Um, but that's just to say people knew Raj Chetty was something when he was like 24. Um, I think he was maybe twenty-four or twenty-five when he finished his PhD. Um uh, he has done this really interesting work. I quibble sometimes um, with a few interpretations because he sometimes assumes things one thing causes another and we don't actually know which way that the arrows go all the time, but, um, mm-hmm. but for understanding what the patterns look like, it's just really, really brilliant work. You can see that um, starting out at a, sort of a high place socioeconomically, Uh, makes you very likely to stay there if you're white. But if you're not white, it's much easier to fall down into lower parts of the uh, income distribution. And then similarly, whites Mm. are more able to move up out of the lowest categories in the income distribution, and blacks are not as likely. And so, so he lays out these patterns that tell us we have way more work to do to understand Um, What are the interventions? That's really my piece. Like what interventions can really do something? And, and they're very, they're very important to actually study these interventions because part of our challenge is people have Mm -hmm. really good ideas that are sometimes really terrible. They have really good ideas in the sense of their heart and what they think would be good. but then uh, you could do a study and you find out, oh, this actually turns out to be counterproductive. So there's a study that I, I was in the room when they were presenting. It was so disheartening to me. And um, so there's groups um, talking about this notion of banning the box from uh, employment applications. The box is the thing that you check if you have a, any kind of criminal record. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: And so there's this real strong concern, of course, that like having a box there um, and people having to check a box, um, could be really harmful uh, to people trying to look for jobs. Um, and so they uh, they did a study where they took the box away and they looked at what happened to the hiring patterns. And what they found was that rather than discriminating against people with a criminal record, the employers now just directly scrim- discriminate on the basis of race because they no longer had a signal of criminal record. And so they were using race as that proxy. Yeah. Um, hmm. And this was just incredibly disheartening and, and has been something I've tried to make sure to share um, with people who are working on those kinds of issues because I know what they have in mind and I know they have in mind that this would be better mm-hmm. but it may be worse. Uh, and mm-hmm. so um, and so having that data and that evidence is just really crucial. Um, I have p- former students who work in um, city governments and in reform organizations and in non-government organizations um, and I love the idea that I am still in touch with so many of them, mostly via Facebook, uh, but they, they describe what they're working on and I can actually point them to where the studies are being done on the things that they're working on and um, Ban the Box was mm-hmm. one of those. And I think um, you know, there, are, there are some of these, um, some of these really well-intentioned things, for instance, maybe a, like a, a very, very high minimum wage um, c- Create concerns mm-hmm. about um, people being able to get a job at all, um, and and um, and so we can we can make missteps when we try to advocate for policy in our communities if we don't know what the unintended consequences would be. And so I, I really feel like that's a big piece of what I try to bring to the table is um, knowing enough about what the research suggests to be able to make sure we don't make those kinds of mistakes.
0: Absolutely, I, I. Th- it just is such a reminder of how complex this issue of equity is and how it couldn't just be, uh, a civil rights act got put in place and suddenly we all just adopted a certain mentality which first of all didn't happen right yeah. um it can't just be yeah. one law it can't be one choice it can't be one program none of those things really can get at the complexities that are at play whether it's the subconscious as you referred to in the the racial discrimination when the box got removed or um i can think of a number of other other places where money that people believe is getting invested in the community um, ultimately gets caught kind of in the net of, of, uh, well intentions, right. Whether it be a nonprofit, whether it be a government program. And by the time you do all the staffing and all the paperwork, uh, oftentimes the amount of resources that actually get to the person and the ability of those resources to truly create equity, um, and, and then therefore access, um, is is incredibly limited, yeah. which is very disheartening, but I also hear in what you 're saying we must persist um to to do the work of research to do the work of testing to do the work of of trying and dreaming and going back to the drawing board again and again until we till we find what what roads and it will it will almost assuredly be many roads that need to come together and converge and work in in parallel to each other. To address things. And I think there's no no greater thing that pointed that out than COVID-19. I, I know that you've spent a lot of time, you referred to it with your kids, uh, helping them to understand supply and demand. I know that on social media, you were keeping us all abreast with all of your graphs regarding that data. Um, what, what do you think are some of the lessons that we learn from what we witness, what we are witnessing because it's not over, um, in COVID-19 and how does that relate to the conversation of equity?
1: Um, so I think it's it's very tightly related in the sense that we, we are potentially even more aware of how little of a cushion a lot of Americans have for being able to, um, to manage an emergency. Um, these are, these are not surprises in terms of data we know people have very little savings in a lot of cases even people with um even people who have high enough incomes um we've got such a consumerist culture and a sort of um the old keeping up with the joneses there's just there's if there's more money going out than coming in it doesn't really matter how much came in right um so so both high right. income and low income people have this problem um that there's just not uh there's not a cushion there ready for them um so one one of the issues I think is just that this comes back to um what can we do to improve um wealth as a, a basic insurance uh sort of aspect for any family. What what can we do to make sure a family has something to draw on in an emergency? Um and so that certainly affects um low income people disproportionately, but it affects everyone in some ways. Um I think one of the challenges of inequality that's really come up to me through this is um, because I'm really interested in food policy and, um, and food assistance effectiveness. Um, I've been really concerned that um, even with schools and food pantries doing as much as they possibly can and even with um, the SNAP program, um, which, is, um, which is direct food assistance on, on a debit card um, in dollars, Um, The SNAP program is available, Uh, it has not, there's been no reduction in access to it, if anything, an increased access, increased benefits. Uh, Even in light of all of that, we have had tremendous trouble keeping everyone from being hungry in this country. And and so I'm really troubled by that and continuing to try to understand um, really what the mechanisms are that have prevented people from accessing food. It would be easy to say, and some people already have said, that the problem is SNAP is not generous enough. But I don't think it's quite as simple as that. Um, uh, Mm -hmm. Part of the reason that I don't think so is because the issues of access to food also include things like transportation. And so a person may have money but not a way to get to food. Um, And in COVID-19, we've also just had this issue of actually lack of availability of certain kinds of food. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen if, if anyone's actually started a study, but early on in the in the pandemic, um, someone on Facebook reminded a lot of us helpfully to not purchase food that has a WIC label on it. Um, so the WIC program is a nutrition assistance program that is literally vouchers for specific food items. So if a person is receiving WIC and they go in the store and they're just those items are not right. there, they can't get a substitute. Yes. There isn't anything else. Um, mm-hmm. And so that aspect of the WIC program, I think, um, could be revisited. Um, the upside of the WIC program is it tries to be a nutrition program. And so it really is serious about like what's contained in the food basket, they would call it. Mm. Um, like what's included that it's, that it's not something where uh, you get to choose whatever you want, like snap because it's really designed for, um, like, there's a prenatal WIC uh, market basket that is like the things that you should be eating to have a healthy pregnancy. Um, and so we run into that sort of ongoing challenge of how do you make a program that meets its real goals um, but does not box people in. Um, I mean, ironically, uh, along with most people, I was not a fan of uh, recent um, arguments to, uh, a few months ago to try to um, give people a box of food and reduce SNAP benefits. You know, the, it was called the Harvest Box Program. It came um, out of the federal government. Um, It didn't it didn't pass. They tried to put it in the farm bill and it didn't pass. Uh, But there was this huge concern of this sort of like stigma and lack of agency that you're uh, giving people by giving them a box Mm -hmm. of food. Um, What I felt was ironic was I I wished there were boxes of food right now in this sense, because there are so many people who just seemingly don't have access um, to food, despite the best efforts, I think, of everyone trying to make sure that there's some food access. Um, so I don't know what it might look like for there to be some kind of baseline way of maintaining food access in a time like this. This is just unprecedented. So it's it's hard to know. Um, one of the other equity issues that I really see um, as an ongoing thing is that the occupational distribution of people across uh, different kinds of jobs varies a lot by socioeconomic status. Of course, somewhat just mechanically, it would have to. Um, if you work in an industry that doesn't pay well, the people in that industry have less money. Um, but these these are also distributed very differently by race. Um, and I'm sure that you saw these. Uh, there was a photographer some time ago who did some photography where they just changed the typical race of people in occupations and took pictures to show us how unusual it would be. And so there was a picture, the one I remember, it was a picture of a bunch of Asian women getting pedicures from white women in a... A shop. Yes. Um, And this sort of Mm -hmm. that you may not realize what is really going on until you see the the counter of that and realize, oh, yeah, that's Mm -hmm. that's an unusual thing for me to see. Um, But what is it that I'm usually seeing? Um, We know that, for instance, the were uh, a huge uh, victim of covid-19, which means a lot of uh, low income Asian refugees are affected more so than other people in the population. Um, the New York Times recently put out a piece on Asian unemployment. It's jumped way more than all the other ethnic groups. Um, And Mm -hmm. there's um, sort of ongoing questions about like, which, which Asians, and the, the article lays out the obvious fact that there are a wide variety of education levels and ethnic origins of people who are who are classified as Asian in our racial classification system. And so Um, understanding the importance of understanding national origin and educational background and how these have played into the occupational distribution. Um, In one sense, uh, some of the workers in these um, sort of um, jobs that are available to people with less education are in essential um, worker sort of contexts like grocery stores. And so some of those jobs have actually been more Mm -hmm. secure than some other kinds of jobs. But Um, But in large part, there are people who've been laid off who uh, may have trouble being able to come back from this kind of um, this kind of long absence from work. um, And under the health conditions we're under, it's hard to know how nail salons uh, will have to change the way they operate. Um, Mm -hmm. And nails are a classic example of something that if the if the prices aren't low enough, people can do it themselves. And so the prices have to be low enough for people to still buy this as an, a service from someone else. Um, but if it's expensive to provide the service um, to create the, the um, needed infrastructure at the salon, for instance, to keep the social distance, uh, it may be too expensive on the supply side for the employer to keep things going. Uh, and so um, so I'm really concerned looking forward um, about these kinds of jobs where Um, people just may not be able to ever go back to the kind of work that they were doing.
0: Mm -hmm. And all of the impact of that. Absolutely. I know one thing I was was reflecting on throughout COVID was um, the impact of the Chinese Exclusion Act, you know, going back to how history impacts today, you, you know, many Many Americans don't really realize that the reason why there are so many Chinese restaurants and the way that they function across our nation, and why you might find a Chinese restaurant in a small town in the mountains, um, all corresponds back to there being an era when that was the business you were allowed to own, right? As a as a Chinese um, resident of the United States, uh, citizen mm-hmm. or not, and. And so there's a whole economic ecosystem many times that has been built around historic, you know, what we might think of as historic uh, segregation and or racist uh, policy choices. Mm -hmm. Right. But that came right up and impacted, especially uh, for Chinese restaurants in light of COVID-19 because of the way that, um, you know, the narrative was was told. Now you impact tremendously this industry that was such a, a robust industry because of decisions that were made a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And I I think the more and more that I learn about policy decisions and things like redlining that you referred to earlier, um, the more I realize this is all so connected, right? Our history and our, our reality today is so connected and whether we're a researcher like you, or we are able to benefit from the research of people like you. I think that we have we have been challenged. I hope that those of you who are listening that you are hearing the challenge uh, of the people that are out marching on the streets, of the things that are coming across your social media as you're listening here to to just take that take it and say, you know what, I don't know a lot and I need to learn more because if I am going to stand and make decisions, right, we're in a democratic society, we're voting, we have, we have, I believe, a responsibility to educate ourselves around these things um, that are impacting our our nation Mm -hmm. and our world as humanity and as citizens. And so I just hope that, that those of, uh, who are listening to us in this conversation today We'll lean in to some of that that learning to some of the people that you mentioned um, to better educate themselves so that when they say this is what I think and believe and feel about public assistance and Medicaid and health care and all these things that we can have some really passionate opinions about that we would come to. Uh, not just our opinions, but what we do with those opinions, the actions that we take would, would just be more well-informed, which I hear you saying uh, repeatedly as you speak about just how important research Mm is. Um, As we we're we're running out of our time here uh, today, I want to make sure that people can get connected to some of that research, especially the work um, that you've done and some of the folks that you connected. So we'll make sure that I get, um, those names correctly so I can put them up on the website um, in terms of accessing some of the folks that you've Mm -hmm. mentioned. But is there also a good way for people to stay connected to your research or where would you point Um, that?
1: The easiest way is really my um, website at Syracuse University. And then I have have some public posts on Facebook if you're interested in understanding more about, um, not just about the progress of um, COVID-19. I have a lot of graphs and data there, but But sort of how to interpret what those things mean, because what I found was um, people were quick to present data, but were a little short on interpretation uh, in a lot of stuff that was coming Mm -hmm. out. And so uh, and so I really one of my passions is helping people to um, make sure they know how to think when they see numbers or see a graph, Um, because uh it's it's become easier and easier to put good data into Excel and make a graph, but it's still as hard as it ever was to interpret mm-hmm. what it means. And so um and so if uh, someone's interested in that, they could take a look at my public Facebook posts and um, if they're interested in um policy research, um I'm part of the Center for Policy Research at SU and so that um the website that contains my profile contains those of a lot of others including the person who did uh, for instance, the, um, the racial profiling study in Syracuse and others.
0: Excellent. So we'll make sure that we put that into um, the podcast notes so that those of you who are listening are able to access that information and be able to know who Sarah is. And um, if there are other ways that you can not only educate yourself, but continue to move forward. Uh, we're so glad that you joined us for this conversation today, uh, who are listening. And Sarah, I'm really grateful always for your insight. And I, I know that we could have had about another two hours of this conversation and still not have scratched the surface, but I'm so grateful for the the little teaser um, that you gave us and uh, to stimulate our thinking and push us into to doing some more of our own understanding and learning. So thank you. For Thank you. It time was just today. a
1: pleasure. And I'm so happy to be a part of this.